Hello and welcome to Health Outreach Partners podcast series, The COVID-19 Pandemic and What It Taught Us. In this eight-part series, we'll hear from subject matter experts on the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly its effects on mental health and well-being. In each episode, you'll hear from different members of our healthcare workforce, community members, and Health Outreach Partners' own team about challenges and lessons learned from the pandemic. We appreciate the importance of reflection and recognition on the profound impacts COVID-19 and the pandemic response efforts have had on our lives and on our mental health. We are excited to share lessons learned from our esteemed guests and imagine a safer, healthier world for all. Hello listeners, I'm Abba Anderson Amo from HOP. Today we'll be talking about the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on youth mental health and education with my esteemed guest, Ali Popovich, a seasoned teacher from Brentwood, California, and Lauren Purcell, a licensed marriage and family therapist from Berkeley, California. We'll discuss how pandemic and the response efforts impacted the mental health and well-being of youth and their families during the pandemic. Ali and Lauren, it's a great pleasure to have you join us today. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your yourselves in both your respective professions and as parents for our listeners? Sure. Um, this, this is Ali. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. I have been an elementary school teacher for 22 years, teaching mostly third, fourth, and fifth grades. Um, during the pandemic, I was uh, and still am teaching fourth grade. And then my children are currently 15, 10, and seven, although he'll be eight in a couple weeks. So we'll, we'll round up to eight. Um, so right now there, I have a freshman in high school, a fifth grader, and a second grader. During distance learning, I had a kindergartner, a third grader, and a seventh grader. Wow. Thank you for that. You're like a superwoman. <laughs> it was a rough year. Yeah. Okay. We hear from you, Lauren. Yes, sure. It's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Lauren Purcell. And as you mentioned, I'm a marriage and family therapist in the East Bay. And I've been a therapist for 21 years and have been working in that time with children and families and also adults. And I have also two children, 17 and 11, and I'm a stepmom to a 26-year-old, so a young adult. And I'm in private practice, and in my private practice, currently I do see youth families, youth as young as five, for the most part, five and up, children, middle schoolers, high schoolers, adults, families. And I've been in my private practice for 11 years and you know, switched overnight to all online during COVID, which we all did. And was actually very grateful for the technology to be able to do therapy online. It was really invaluable. So as much as I don't always love technology, it was really a blessing. Well, I can relate to that. I suck at technology, um, but thank you guys so much for being here today. Um, I'm going to jump in and ask a few questions here, and both Ali and Lauren can take turns in answering this. What have you both seen with the mental health of children and their families, like parents or even guardians during the um, COVID pandemic? And as a clinician and therapist and a parent, I would like you to share your perspective on that, Lauren. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, definitely it was pretty rough for most people, from my observation, you know, especially working with children, obviously 
those children have parents or guardians. So it was hard for both the children and the parents in different ways, obviously. You know, I think everything just happened so suddenly, which I think was a big part of the challenge for people. I think humans just do a lot better when we have preparation and we know what's going to happen, and especially children. You know, they don't often do so well with sudden changes and spontaneity, unless it's fun spontaneity. So I think that was very traumatic for people, just how much everything had to switch so quickly. And the parents, I think, were feeling very anxious and overwhelmed, which then trickled down to the kids. Again, I was very grateful for the technology that at least kids could have online school. And, you know, was it perfect? No, it was definitely not perfect. And different schools had different levels of success with online school. But I think back to before there was, you know, the internet and what that would have been like just to all of a sudden have no school for the kids and no structure. And so I have tried to look at the positives of the technology that I definitely don't think it's anywhere near as beneficial as in-person school, but I do think it gave them some kind of structure and semblance of continuity. You know, there's so much I could say, but, you know, I would say overall, there was just a lot of mental health challenges for children and their parents and the adults I saw, you know, just a lot of uncertainty, anxiety, overwhelm, depression, financial issues, obviously health issues, just sort of on every level, there was stress, I noticed. And also personally, you know, having to juggle for parents, having to juggle working, and not being with their kids, but yet their kids often were too young to know how to manage the technology and you just couldn't be in two places at once. So very stressful. Oh my goodness. I feel like you just defined me during the pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I honestly love that you touched on online school because we have Allie here, who's a teacher and a parent. And um, I know it was a tough time. I didn't have any kids in school, but I had, I think a one year, one and a half year old during the pandemic. So even with her, she had no social, you know, communication with anyone except the people that lived in the household and uh, hearing from my colleagues and their children. And like you said, online school and being at home, but you have to be at work because you have to provide for your kids. It was really tough. So Ali, how do you, how did you fit into this? How did the teachers and the parents and the students, how did you guys work this out? It's a loaded question. It was, it was probably the hardest year of my life. And having, uh, I was trying to teach fourth graders who were navigating online stuff. And I will say the technology benefit of it has been nice. Kids are much more technologically adept at this point. So there's a lot more I can do with tech in the classroom. I learned a lot that I didn't know before different platforms that I hadn't used that I'm still using today. So there's some, been some nice benefits, but as we're trying to learn all of that together, because we didn't know, teachers didn't know what we were doing either. So it was all learning as we went. Um, I had a non-reader sitting next to me in kindergarten. So trying to navigate him on kindergarten, as well as monitor my eight-year-old at the time. And then my seventh grader who, like a typical seventh grader, wasn't super into school anyways, and then really disconnected with distance. Um, and he went from being a pretty solid A, B student to, to definitely not. 
Um, and it took us a little while to figure out that um, there were, there was a couple days, mornings a week when I would go and Zoom on campus with my other kids and leave him home by himself. It took us a while to figure out that he wasn't Zooming. He was, you know, watching TV and playing video games, which is normal. That's what a lot of kids were doing. Um, but it was interesting to have that parent perspective because from the teacher perspective, when I was tackling that with parents going, hey, I haven't seen your kid for a while. Oh, well, I don't know what they're doing while I'm at work or or in my office or whatever. So there's that all that disconnect and trying to um, monitor everything. I actually feel like I have a lot of PTSD from that year in a sense. I Once that year was over, I completely rearranged my office because I didn't want to be in there the same way that it was. We cleaned out everything from school within like 10 minutes of that last Zoom shutting down on that last day of school. I just did not ever want to go back to it. And I go back and look in my plan book to try to remember, you know, that's a normal teacher thing. Like, oh, what did I do this time last year? What did I do? And I'm reading my notes going, I don't remember any of that, which is really interesting. I've never had such a disconnect before. I don't really remember those students very well. Um, I, I do, but I don't. I remember their backgrounds. Like I remember the kid who had their Christmas tree up until March, things like that. But I don't remember a lot of their personalities and conversations we had, which is a bummer because I really do love my students. And those were great kids. They weren't any better or worse than any other kids. They they deserve the same amount of love. And I just don't really remember it. And I remember when we first shut down, so that was towards in March of, you know, kind of towards the end of the school year, I saw the grieving process happen, which was really unique. And I saw it happen with each of my kids, that total sadness and anger of everything that they lost overnight, just that rug pulled out from underneath them first learning, okay, my kids are all competitive dancers. So learning that the dance competitions weren't going to happen. Then realizing that school was going to be shut down for a little while. Then it's, oh, you're not going back to school. You're not going to see these friends or these teachers again. You know, things we had planned for the summer. Oh, that's gone too. So like every week, there was just another thing pulled out from under them and watching that anger was really hard as a parent. And my heart was so broken for my own children and there was nothing I could do about it, which was really a helpless feeling as a parent. Um, so I, I feel like I grieved along with them. And then that unknown, that constant, well, we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know if we're going back to school. We don't know how online school is going to work. I don't know how many hours you're going to be on Zoom. I don't. I have no idea what it's going to look like. In a way, I think it taught them a little bit of resiliency that I'm seeing in them now. But at the same time, that was a rough, a lot of emotions for, for younger kids to deal with. My current students, I'm seen a little bit less resiliency now. And I think that there's some kind of apathy in a sense of like, eh, well, you know, this could all go away anyways. I'm not, what do I care? It just doesn't matter. And they're not all like that, but I'm seeing more of it than I ever have in my two decades of teaching. Wow. Um, before I even go into the next phase of the questions, I do want to extend a huge, huge amount of gratitude to both of you in your individual um, professional life and even as parents juggling both things because I can't relate to you guys in so many different ways. I'm not a teacher or a licensed therapist, but I did work in the pharmacy during the pandemic. So I was up at 4 a.m., gone between 3 a.m. to 3 p.m., trying to fix medicine, do this, and then have a baby at home to come to and I'm scared because my parents you know I have a my mom is in remission from cancer and coming back not knowing if I got COVID and I'm going to give it to her so all these things and I'm thinking about parents being a 
in their offices or wherever they're working and thinking, oh, my kid is in school in Zoom, but not there. And then finding out that they're not there and you know that your kid is lagging behind because what's been thought is falling behind. I like that you also brought up the fact that both the students and the teachers were learning the system together. And even though you guys are not in the same space, um, to me, I, I like it when somebody's doing something with me because I feel like when it's together, if I suck, you're going to suck. If I do great, you're going to do great. So I know that some students would appreciate the fact that you guys were also learning this with them and alongside them and teaching them at the same time. Lauren, you made a good point about how, you know, preparations in people's lifestyle, like people like structure, even though some people say, I don't like structure, I don't like to plan. In some ways, we all like to plan something, even if it's not everything in your life. And not being able to prepare for the next day, oh, I wake up at 8 a.m., I drop my kids off at 9, da, 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 da. And what am I going to do tomorrow? You don't know. So um, that was a good point that you made. Going into the next question, um, one of the researches that we uh, made by that was made by CDC is like, we know that children were greatly impacted by the pandemic, and we know that a supportive environment is incredibly important for children, adolescents, and young, young adults. In a study published by the CDC in 2022, school connectedness or a sense of being cared for, supported, and belonging at a school had an important effect on students' well-being during the pandemic. Those that felt connected even during distance learning were less likely to experience persistent feelings of sadness. However, less than half of the youth reported feeling connected or close to their community during the pandemic. This particular study focused on high school age youth, but we know that mental health impacts of the pandemic have been felt by younger students. How have you seen this impact of connectedness or lack of, therefore, on the youth in your respective jobs? Um, I can start there. Yeah, I mean, I think that was really a huge, huge part of it for children of all ages was the lack of connection. You know, I think, right, we kids go to school for so many reasons, and only one of those is academic. And I think so much of school for children is a community and it's peers and it's, you know, even other adults in their life that they can talk to. And that I just don't believe that, you know, one or two parents or caregivers is enough really for children. You know, it's like the old, it takes a village concept, which I really love. And I think people really need each other. And most kids, you know, except those who have been homeschooled, are really used to having a whole community of people that they see regularly and they, you know, kind of fulfill their needs from different people, you know, whether that's their friends, even maybe kids they don't get along with at school, like they're learning there and they're working things out and they're learning social skills and their teachers and their specialist teachers and the play yard supervisors. And I just believe that kids are getting so much from all these people. And then all of a sudden that was all taken away. You know, in my practice, I see people, you know, not in the school setting anyway, even when it's not COVID. So for me, what really changed was seeing people like on a screen. So there was still connection. And I felt like sort of like a landing pad for kids, especially in COVID. It was like we landed in this space 
on the internet and it was all very strange. Um, but it was also really wonderful because they could go and have their room and shut the door and sort of have someone to just tell everything to different, different issues came up in my practice, of course, with like privacy and a big part of therapy is confidentiality and having a private space, you know, where nobody else is hearing them, you know, not a friend, not a sibling, not a parent. And then all of a sudden they're doing therapy, like in their house and some of them share a bedroom. And so uh, siblings are coming in and out and some kids felt really worried that their parents were hearing. So then they wouldn't really tell me things. And it was just, it, it really switched things in that way very much. And then it, just some positives in terms of connection that I saw certain kids doing better than others in the pandemic were, you know, kids who had siblings, I do feel like did a bit better because they at least had some some people their relative age that they could play with and talk to and connect with and go in the backyard and, you know, play games or make up, make believe. And kids who didn't have siblings, I think suffered in a, in a different way. And then I also noticed that, you know, in families where one or both of the parents or caregivers, you know, very few had neither parent working, but in families where one parent didn't have to work, you know, or worked very part-time, those kids definitely did a lot better because they had that connection. And I think it really does come back to that connection. You know, yes, if parents were home, yes, the kids knew they were home, but then they were in a room with the door shut on their own work and they weren't really accessible to the kids. So a lot of kids really suffered from both parents working or in a single parent home if that parent was working full-time. I think that really, really made kids struggle. You know, I definitely saw a huge impact, positive impact when, you know, things started improving a little bit with COVID and vaccines came and a lot of families did these learning pods where, you know, two to four kids or five kids would get together at one family's house and everyone was testing. And it was really wonderful for a lot of kids that could do that because it gave them a sense of community. They could play when there were breaks from school. I think it also motivated them to like be online and do school, which a lot of kids I think found really boring and hard to connect with. It's like if this friend of theirs right next to them was doing it too, or maybe they were even sharing a screen. I just saw that that connection had a huge impact on the children. So I was very grateful for that. But again, not every family could do learning pods for different reasons. And usually the parents had to, you know, take turns monitoring that. And if someone had a full-time job, it's pretty hard to monitor a learning pod. So, you know, it was complicated and I definitely don't want to presume that all families could do that, but I think it was very helpful. Great points. Allie, what's your thought on this? Because my kids are all different ages from a parent perspective, I really saw it impact them each differently. My kindergartner lost his first, first day of school ever because it was kindergarten. And then unfortunately he got COVID for his first day of school for first grade. So he didn't get that either. And my, my grieving over that was really huge. I was so, so, so sad for him, but because he never knew any different with school in a way, kindergarten kind of went okay with him. Academically, it was a harder hit. Um, but socially his teacher would leave the zoom on during breaks. And so he would usually run and grab a quick snack and then come back and really chat with kids. And he was comfortable. It took him a little while because they, you know, these are five and six year olds and 
Um, but after a while, they really were chatty. And some of the friends that I listened to him talk to are still his friends two years later. And he still talks to those same kids. So it, it he's had an easier time kind of bouncing back from that. My third grader um, is a naturally really creative kid. And so being home with her was really cool. She would build these. I mean, I was shopping on Amazon as if it was going out of style. And so all these boxes were coming. She would make Barbie dream houses with working elevators and make these, you know, a mass, massive castles and all these cool things. And it was really neat to see her do that. At the same time, my workload was the biggest that I've ever had in my life. So I was working 12, 14 hour days um, just on the computer all the time, grading more than I've ever graded because I was worried that parents were seeing a lot more of it. So I was concerned about making more comments than I would normally do. Um, so I was just working these crazy hours. So I was present, but not, it was a very disconnected present. Um, my seventh grader at the time, he's definitely had the hardest time coming back and his friends have had a much harder time coming back than either of my other two kids' friends have had, um, needing a lot of therapy. Um, one of them has been unable to go back to school. They have not been able to, they've tried going on campus a couple of times and their anxiety level is just through the roof. And when they see each other now, um, they are constantly in a mask, even in a small group outside, which there's nothing wrong with masking, but that's not the norm for that age group. And so just even being outside with their friends is, is a whole different form of anxiety. And it's interesting what you said about siblings, Lauren, they have a much older sister who I don't think was around during pandemic. So essentially we're an only child. Um, and I never really thought about how that would be easier for my kids who had siblings. My kids were also very lucky because um, they're competitive dancers. The dance studio did reopen in the fall of 2020 in a very limited capacity. So I, I wasn't allowed in and the class sizes were very small and they were all in masks. But a couple of times a week, my kids got to go out of the house and be in a room with other kids. And I think that made a really huge difference. I was so happy to have that. And I do see with my students, kids who I know didn't have those activities for whatever reason, they just didn't do them or their activities didn't reopen or their parents didn't feel comfortable sending them uh, socially have had a harder time coming back from pandemic. And I feel like a lot of my class, even though they're nine and 10, um, behaves a lot more like a seven or eight year old would, um, crying little mini temper tantrums in class. And I can equate it to my current seven year old. I'm, I'm seeing those behaviors from nine and 10 year olds. And that makes sense. They kind of missed, you know, roughly a year and a half to two years of socialization. And it's, it's dropped them way down and it's been a hard recovery. So trying, and I'm not a licensed therapist. So trying to catch them up with that while I'm also trying to catch them up academically, because of course they are significantly behind, um, it is really challenging and not something that I feel particularly skilled at. Um, I don't have any training to do that. And so, and plus we have a lot of pressure with curriculum right now to catch them up. So now that we've been back for a year, okay, we got to catch them up academically. Well, that's all well and good, but they're not ready yet. And so that pressure to do both at the same time is really hard. Wow. Both great input. Um, Allie, I can feel the passion from you just talking about the kids and school and, you know, um, just the last point where you mentioned not being a licensed therapist, but you have to play that role sometimes. And um, I worked for the county, San Luis County, and on the school department for COVID unit. So um, when it was 
good for us to go back into, you know, socialization when they went back to school. I made it a point to visit all the school districts that were under me to see how the teachers were doing, to connect with them. And not one person said, oh, we're great. Everybody kept mentioning the mental health part and they're like you know what we have to go through this with the kids we you know we have to pick them up we need therapy ourselves and they kept saying that like I know the kids need therapy but we need therapy and I can totally like they didn't tell me details of what was going on but from what you're saying like my daughter is just the only kid and I just enrolled her in school in September of last year and it took a while for her to even get close to anyone because her best friend is my dad, Papa. <laughs> and Papa is 72. Papa doesn't play like other kids. So I can totally understand a seventh grader, a kindergarten, and even a seven, uh, a, um, a third grader. I, I love that your daughter is creative, but not all kids are creative. My daughter is creative too she will tell you she will make it a point to tell you this is pretend so go along with it so <laughs> yeah and the fact that some kids also got like Lauren's point about the learning pods I think that was a great idea and I wished every community had that because that would have made a huge impact a huge significant difference because I am also a people person I can draw back but I'm also very people-liked minded person I do well with when people are around and I could see a lot of kids doing that especially youth what else they don't want to hang out with their parents so um but I'm so grateful that you guys are around and you guys are able to do this and um moving forward like we the pandemic created an unprecedented disruption of schools and so many services available through the school system like feeding you know therapy even talking to a teacher some kids find their teachers as their best friends and talk to them you know or, or play with them I don't know whatever they do but it's their comfort zone uh, the evolution of, of COVID-19 and the response effect are ongoing and have impacted the lives and the mental health of students and their families in a variety of ways how do you see the school system learning from the ways in which youth mental health have been impacted have you seen changes implemented to support the youth and their families or have you not recognized any of these things that's a great question um and my my principal recently said that we will probably still see the effects of shutdown for another five years based on how old the kids were at the time and how far they're along in school so we're, we're still going to have incoming kindergartners who missed, you know, preschool, who saw everyone in masks. And so the speech needs have been off the charts and are going to continue to rise. So those SLP, the speech and language therapists, um, which is a hard position to find to fill it. They're, they're not usually paid what they need to be paid. And so there it's very hard to find good ones that'll stay. That's actually gone remote at our school, which has been very interesting. So my kids who who need speech therapy get pulled out of the classroom and then go sit in front of a screen in another classroom, which that's a new thing. I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. I'm trying to keep a really open mind, but it's weird sending them to a teacher that I've never seen, that I've never met. I will say some of the positives are all of our schools in our district hired full-time counselors, whereas in the past we had part-time counselors. And so we have someone on site full-time, which is great. We really need two or three, which we're not going to get at an elementary school, but our school has um, over 800 kids and 
you know, that that's a lot to service on a day. So I'll ask, and our counselor's great. She's so wonderful. You know, hey, do you have a group that this child can fit in? And it's kind of like, well, yeah, but it's full and I don't have time to see them individually. And she puts out a lot of fires and she's wonderful where, you know, if you call her, she'll be there as soon as she can. But that happens a lot. We have a lot, especially those, those younger kids who missed um, kindergarten, missed preschool. So our first, second graders, lots of just kind of extreme behaviors, like throwing stuff in the classroom, kicking, hitting things that don't typically happen in a general education classroom, rolling around on the floor constantly, um, nonverbal kids coming in there, refusing to speak. So um, she's really amazing with that. But because she's dealing with those really extreme things, some of the less extreme things, just like, okay, anxiety, I'm nervous to be at school today, or I'm having trouble making friends. She has less time to devote to that. Not that she doesn't want to, and that she's not good at it. There's just a lot less time. Other thing that I really noticed is we had really two years where parents weren't welcome on campus. Not that they weren't welcome to be part of their children's education. Of course they were. But once shutdown happened that first year or so that we were back, the amount of parent volunteers was extremely limited. And then for a while it was, well, you have to be vaccinated, but that's changed. But you had to prove a lot. And so there was a lot of hoops to jump through to be able to come onto campus at all. You could not get past the office door. And I think that a lot of parents kind of gave up. So now that parent connectedness is really gone. And I, that's something that I've brought up with our leadership team of like, hey, how are we going to get these parents back on campus? There's parents who want to be there. They want to volunteer in their child's classroom. They want to be there on a regular basis, but they were so turned off through all the hoops they had to jump through. How do we get them back? And then those younger parents who their kids were in first grade or kindergarten they don't even know that there's volunteer opportunities for them. How do we introduce them to coming onto campus? How do we welcome them back? Because that connectedness at that age, you know, in high school, that connectedness to school is really because of the kid and what the kid chooses to get involved in. First, second, third grade, it's because of what they see their parents do. So when they see their parents wanting to be on campus, then they want to be there. Well, if their parents are just dropping them off and leaving, the kid's a lot less connected. And so that I've seen really different. And I feel like that I, we can't be the only school struggling with that, but I haven't heard it talked about a lot. So I think that it's, we've been so concerned about the kids. We've kind of forgotten that parent part. Wow. I like that you made a point. The point is younger parents have no idea that there's volunteer work. I have no idea. I just heard this. <laughs> so it is a real problem. It is something that it needs to, we need to talk about. We need to inform parents. We need to inform the kids because I can see kids wanting to see their parents once a week in their classroom to do fun things with them. You know, my daughter likes painting with me, even though she literally takes all the paints and smashes it everywhere, but it's still fun for her. She thinks she's done great. Um, Lauren, have you had any concerns from a parent teacher in your therapy session or a student in your therapy session describing anything that Ali said in terms of not having enough counselors on campus or other people or other students acting up, you know, um, out of their character because some people did change or evolve during all this from being a cool, calm kid to being a rowdy mm -hmm. kid did you, did, has anybody said yeah. anything or individually said anything about this to you? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, just the fact alone that most mental health, you know, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, in the whole Bay Area, and this is where I live. So this is really the area I know. But I also know that all around the country, it's like this, that mental health providers are completely over swamped with clients and people can't take referrals. You know, I, I have a referral list and I used to always be able to you know, help someone get into a practice if or a clinic if I was full. And now people can't really get the services always that they need or they're on wait lists. And I think this is really indicative that, you know, there's a much greater need for mental health services for kids and teens of all ages after the pandemic. I mean, it's it's like nothing I've seen in 20 years. And it's really, you know, it's sad in one sense because people can't always get the help they need. And it's also, you know, I do try to look at the positives when possible in life. And I think it's actually also very encouraging that people are getting services for their kids or their students. Um, I have a relationship with several counselors at schools in the area who, you know, refer to me and to other therapists. And that's a great relationship you know, and, and I really feel grateful when school counselors realize that the need is greater than what they can serve. And so they refer out, you know, the problem is that I can't always take everyone that's being referred to me at different times. I mean, it shifts, you know, sometimes I have openings. So, you know, I definitely see that. And I see that just a lot more anxiety than people ever used to have, you know, all the way from little kids up to young adults. I mean, just, and it makes sense, right? It's anxiety, worry about the unknown. You know, I think a lot of kids did feel that alley about their parents not coming on campus. You know, a lot of kids have said to me, well, if it's not safe for my parents to go on campus, then is it safe for me to go on campus? You know, and it's really hard to explain to a seven-year-old, you know, how just like less people is safer, but then they really can be very literal and think like, well, if they can't come because it's not safe, you know, so there's been a lot of education I've had to do with clients and my own kids um, just about COVID and about viruses and how they spread and, you know, keeping numbers down keeps the community safer. And it's just been a lot, you know, and, and I think everyone feels the anxiety. So kids are really sponges and they absorb everything that's in their environment, you know, positive and challenging. And I think even the administrators, right. And the teachers, as you're saying, there's just a lot more anxiety and a lot more pressure on everybody. Now it's interesting, Lauren, we, um, we're told so long to keep our doors open for that COVID safety. And then the Texas shooting happened. Um, and I didn't bring it up with my students because they're they're nine and 10. And um, I told their parents that I wasn't going to discuss in the classroom. But then we circled back to where we've been the last before COVID, where we were very much told, keep your doors shut and locked for that intruder safety. So the the disconnect in my mind was like, wait a minute. Okay, I need to keep the door open so I can keep the kids healthy, but I also need to keep it shut and locked so I can keep intruders out what am I supposed to do with that as a teacher? It's really discombobulating. I'm like, well, six of one half dozen of the other, I suppose I'm not really sure how to keep my own students safe. And I had um, last year, I had COVID sweep through my classroom. It hit about eight kids and everyone was fine. You know, they missed a lot of school and, and, and were a little sick, but they all came back and were fine. 
but my heart broke because I was working so hard to try to keep those kids healthy and there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I can take all the precautions everyone else is doing, but it's, it's an airborne virus and that it doesn't care that I'm there. Um, so that, that was really hard for me. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, Lauren, great. If my parents are not allowed in the school because it's not safe for them, that's my favorite line. Why am I there? I would say the same thing. I don't want to be there if my mom and my dad are being safe at home. And kids really, really, they're smarter than sometimes we credit them for because you're telling them one thing and yet you're doing the other and they, they look up to us. And Ali, just that so you know, um, you're like, I think every every teacher does the best they can for their for their students. Um, I've come to realize that you can't protect everyone, especially in your own household or even in school. And knowing that you were doing your hardest to keep them safe, but when they get out of school, you can't do that for them. And so know that you did amazing. And I like that you went up and above to keep them in school and, and trying to teach them something. Um, we did see a significant increase in demand for mental health, as Lauren said, over the course of the pandemic and the services have made this more accessible, have made have been made so accessible to to go through telehealth, which I particularly benefit from because sometimes I do telehealth with my therapist. I started during the pandemic and I'm keeping her. And I every time she tells me, you're doing great, I tell her, I'm not. Don't say that. <laughs> I don't want to hear that because the minute you hang up, something pops up in my life and I go back to downhill. <laughs> so, but however, we we know that mental health impacts of the pandemic have been disproportional, disproportionately felt by students who experience racism and who identify as part of the LGBT, LGBTQ community. Over a third, which is the uh, 36% of students said they experienced racism during, before, and during the COVID pandemic. The highest level was reported among Asian students and Black students and students of multiple races. The survey cannot be determined to the extent of which events during the pandemic contributed to reported racism. However, ex experiences of racism among youth have been linked to poor mental health, academic performance, and a long life health risk behaviors. What do you think schools, mental health services, or other systems could implement to better support the needs of these students and their families? It's that comes back to that connectedness, just getting parents back on campus. I'm, I'm noticing that particularly families of color, they've really struggled with that connectedness. And even now that we're more or less back to normal and having school events again and, you know, carnivals and, and plays and musical, you know, all the little things that parents would come onto campus for, I'm not seeing those families come. Um, and I don't know if it's because they don't really know about them. They don't understand what they are. Their schedule doesn't allow, they don't want to, I'm not sure what the reason is, um, but they're, they're not pulling back. And so of course they're going to feel super disconnected and, probably discriminated against because it doesn't, they, they don't have that connection to that teacher, that connection to that school. So I, I can absolutely see where that connection is so important. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think that it's such a broad topic, right? And there's so much that could be said about this. I really come back to having the need for more social emotional tools and topics being presented in the classroom. You know, I think there really still unfortunately is a stigma for you know, kids, especially teens, to leave their class to go get mental health services, you know, unless they're maybe having such a crisis that they can't help but do that or the teacher takes them there. Um, and it's unfortunate. And I would really love to see more psychoeducation from the teacher to the students about the importance of mental health services and that it's not a sign of weakness. It's really a sign of strength. And you know, I really think that most, especially high schools, could really benefit from more classes about self-care and focusing on yourself and that school is not just to learn academics. And I think in our culture in the United States, there is such a disproportionate focus on academics, you know, even in a lot of elementary schools, honestly. And I just I have been encouraged that I think there is more focus on social emotional definitely than when I was a child. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we live in the Bay Area, so I'm not sure this is widespread in the whole country. There's definitely much more, but I think there's still room for improvement. And I think it really varies school district to school district and then private schools. And I really think just having more focus on self-care and how do we really take care of ourselves and what does that mean? Um, you know, I end up doing a lot of that in my practice and sometimes I feel like it's missing in some families. Maybe parents were never really taught about self-care and the importance of really taking care of yourself, you know, and that when we do, we do a lot better. You know, our mental is very connected to our physical. And if, you know, I see a lot of clients who aren't eating enough or regularly, they don't sleep enough, you know, especially teens. A lot of teens go to bed at like one in the morning and then have to get up at 630 and then they wonder why they feel, you know, depressed and exhausted, you know. So I think just really trying to focus more in the classroom, because that's where kids spend like eight hours of their day every day. Um, so I think there's a really great opportunity there. I think there's some teacher training missing with that. So teachers aren't trained to teach self-care. We're trained to teach math. Right. Um, so, you know, if you need help with yes. fractions, I got you you want me to help you take care of yourself, you know, I can give you my own personal tips, but I don't have the training for that. I also think circling back to the racism and LGBTQ discrimination issue, um, there's a lot of lack of training for teachers for that. And so, you know, do I see racism running rampant through the schools? No. Do I see discrimination, whether it's purposeful or not? Absolutely. Lots of inequity teachers are very scared to discuss certain matters in the classroom. Now, of course, I'm coming from an elementary perspective. I'm, I think that it's a little bit different in high school and middle school. Um, but, you know, even at nine years old, kids certainly are very aware of racism and gender equity and sexuality equity issues, maybe not to the same extent as a 15-year-old might be. But we don't have, at least in my particular district, have been given pretty much no training on how to talk about those subjects in the classroom. And the fear of parental lashing is very real. Um, and after pandemic, when we were teaching in people's homes and everyone saw us in their living room every day, that was very scary knowing that anything that we said could be brought back to us. 
um, during the, the Capitol, the January 6th riots, I did talk about them with my students because I, I wanted to tell them what they were. It was a huge news issue. And I very neutrally, you know, th this is this is what was said. This is what happened. Someone, I, I had a parent create a fake email address and send me these very um, right wing kind of, uh, they, they were very interesting podcasts and news stories trying to, of course, rationalize what had happened with the riots. It was extremely scary to me because I'm thinking, boy, if you, if you can create a fake email address and send me these really just different stories, different perspectives, um, you could find my house if you wanted to and come talk yeah. to me about them or become very angry. Um, that was really scary to me. And so yeah. I can see why teachers don't want to talk about certain things in the classroom because we don't want to deal with the what could come back at us. We don't have that training. Lots of teachers don't have union backing or don't have administrative backing. I'm lucky that I have an amazing administrator and I do have a strong union who will back me, but many don't. And so it's much easier just to not talk about it as opposed to try to teach your students what these issues are and, and how we can grow as a society, teach them to be those productive members of society who are aware of them. It's just easier just to ignore it, which I think is a, a huge shame in our system. And I'm not sure what credential programs are like now, if they're, if they're teaching their younger teachers how to deal with that. It's been a long time since I've, I've done my program, so I don't know what's different, but I'm not seeing big changes. I'm not seeing education change as fast as our world is changing. Mm. Wow. I think you make some great points on that um, front. I don't think it's just teachers in general. I think it's other, even healthcare professionals don't get certain training in certain aspects of things like that. Like the pharmacy don't get trained on, you know, self-care, which is just come pick up your medicine and go home. Public health, we don't get trained on this. Just we're, we're starting to, like for HOP, we're starting to get in the habit of self-care, which is starting with us, the individuals at HOP, which is why when you mentioned self-care, my face light up because I have been practicing self-care since I started HOP. I was horrible at sleeping early, eating right. I had one meal a day and I'm good. My boss just brought it up yesterday and I'm like, stop, this is 2023. I was having breakfast, lunch, dinner and snacks <laughs> in between. So stop. So, um, and as much as sometimes we want to say that it's the responsibility of the parents, the responsibility of the therapist, you know, why is my child coming to you and is not doing better? Why are you teaching my child and my child doesn't have this behavior? I'm going to step back into parenthood and say this to the listeners who are parents or would be parents, that it is our responsibility as much as it is the teachers or the therapists or whoever you think your child should be getting any kind of benefit from. It's our responsibility to teach these kids some of these self-care traits. When I'm home, I, I, I live in two places. So I'm in the Bay currently. When I'm in the Valley, I, my home is in the Central Valley in Merced. But when I'm home and I get to the house, I put everything aside. I play with my daughter. I set up a schedule where we play this particular game. If I'm going to sit there and relax and read, she's going to sit right there in my bed. And we put the covers over and we're like, okay, this is mommy and IAE time. Dare you, my dad or mom, to open the door. She will kick you out because it's our quiet time. And she's only three. And 
I'm doing this for her because I have so much anxiety and I have so much stress in my life because at a younger age, as a black woman, I come from Ghana. I was taught at a younger age, you take care of people. That's what we are taught. And you don't talk about your mental health. You don't tell anybody what's going on with you. You keep it to yourself. You can fight this. And I have to realize that that's not what I want. That's not what's happening here. So in terms of racism and in terms of... um different minority groups we most of us are being told therapy is not good for you I was told by my auntie when I told her I'm going to therapy you don't need therapy you need Jesus okay I don't need Jesus <laughs> Jesus can fix my mental problems right now so like these things are being said in our communities behind the scenes by parents parents are telling students you know, the kids don't do this, do this. So then it's like, I come to school. Ali tells me, my teacher tells me, oh, take a minute to breathe. My mom said I shouldn't breathe. Who, who is this student going to listen to? Mom or Ali? You know, teacher or mom? Definitely mom, because mom is the provider. Mom is the Absolutely. first person they know. So oh, if, if, if Lauren, I came to therapy and I'm a student, you're telling me, why don't you try going to bed at nine? My parents sleep at 1 a.m. Why should I sleep at 1 a.m., 10? You know, it's two different dynamics here. And I appreciate that you guys are saying that. And I hope my listeners or the listeners will pick some of these things and run with them themselves in their own homes rather than pushing, you know, it to other people, to teachers, to therapists, to whoever is in the community, because it does take a village to raise a person. But the village is individual person doing something to help make that person a whole. Um, and then with that being said, we're coming to the end of our um, conversation. Uh, I know that the past years has been incredibly challenging, but before we wrap up today, I want to highlight some of the bright sports or tools that you both use as teachers, as therapists, as parents to support your own mental health, the mental health of others. Can you both share some of these bright moments or tools that have helped you throughout the year? I am pen ready, paper ready, going to take notes on that. So I hope my listeners will have that too. So let, let's hear from you too, please. I definitely think that self-care, especially for parents, you know, is is pretty much imperative um, if you want to be, you know, a good parent, a good enough parent, and to be able to have a job as well, which most people in the Bay Area need to have to be able to live here because of the cost of living. So it's a lot of pressure, you know, and I think anything anyone can do, regardless of your age, actually, to put a bit less pressure on yourself, especially after the pandemic, is very important, you know, if that means sometimes canceling plans if you feel overwhelmed, um, if that means just less input, if you're feeling overstimulated, less screen time, you know, taking breaks for yourself, like knowing, being in touch with yourself enough to know when you're overwhelmed and you need to just take a time out, you know, even as a parent, you know, I think it's people talk a lot about children taking timeouts, but I'm often talking to the parents I work with about taking a time out for yourself. If you feel like you're getting stressed or you're going to yell and you don't want to, you know, just telling your child, like, I need five minutes to go and breathe, get a glass of water, go into a quiet room, you know, and really take care of yourself. Um, and to not expect that you should just always be taking care of other people. 
because it doesn't usually work and it leads to burnout. And, you know, you're also modeling to your kids to take care of yourself, you know, and kids really need to see their parents taking care of themselves to learn that that's important. So I think, you know, the basics are actually the biggies, you know, sleep, eating well, drinking enough water and getting daily exercise and fresh air and sunshine. You know, to me, those are sort of like really important. And I think in our culture, they're often kind of pushed to the wayside. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you have to do those things so that you can do the more important things like, you know, working and being busy and productive. And so I think really coming back to the basics and, you know, and also mindfulness, whatever that is for someone, whether that's going on a walk, whether that's listening to music, whether that's meditation and actually having a mindfulness practice, yoga, whatever brings you back to yourself and gives you a sense of calm, I think is really important. So during during that first part of shutdown, I was determined to ch- turn my children into hikers. Um, I'm lucky that we live by a lot of really cool open space areas within two miles of our house. So it's really fast and easy to get to. And it was something safe, something we could do together. So I was really determined that they were all going to become hikers. It had about a 50% success rate, depending on the kid. Um, But my oldest and I discovered we really liked hiking together. And so that was really a fun thing. I would leave the other two with their dad um, and take him on some of the harder hikes. And we live near Mount Diablo, so we can go up the mountain and we did the waterfall hike. And that's been amazing. So just that idea of getting outside and being active is so important. Um, I actually have a second job. I'm a fitness instructor. So I, I say that education is my, my real job and fitness instructing is my fake job. Um, but I love it. And during pandemic, I, the gym shut down. So I, I lost all of my jobs there. I, I worked at a couple, um, once they lifted the, uh, require or the limitation on outdoor groups, I started teaching from my backyard. And so I've created this community. I shouldn't say I've created together with these women, I've, we've created this community of fitness together. I thought that once the gyms reopened, they would all go back to the gym. They've all stayed with me. And it's not necessarily because of me, it's because of us. So that idea of just getting together and exercising and talking with other women, most of us are kind of similar in ages. Um, you have kids similar ages. They all work full time. It has been the most powerful experience ever. And it's really taught me that importance of finding a group that you can talk to about anything. And we each t- we share books, we talk about movies, we share recipes. We also know what's going on in our kids' lives. We know, you know, who's getting married, who broke up with their boyfriend, whatever. It's been so powerful. So f- my biggest recommendation, I think, is find a group somehow, some someone you can talk to. Obviously, as a fitness instructor, I'm going to tell you that exercise is pretty important, but it doesn't mean that you have to lift a weight. Going out and taking a walk, like Lauren said, can be so huge. Just get outside and get active and get your kid off of a screen. After all that time that they spent on a screen, it is so easy to slip back into whatever they're doing on their different screens. Get your child off of a screen and talk to them. Each of my kids and I have a book that we're reading together. My my oldest does not. He's obviously reading on his own, but my other two, we have a book that I read with them every night. Um, they are not allowed screens at the table. They're not allowed screens in the car. We're, that is my time to connect with them. And I really do see that difference of parents who let their kids have that unlimited screen time. Those kids in the classroom are pretty hard to connect to. I am not nearly as interesting as Minecraft. I know that. And so it's really hard to keep that attention. 
to me, that's the number one thing as a parent, get that child off of the screen and talk to your kid. It is so important. Wow. Thank you both so very much. These are great points. Self-care for parents and find a group. Find a group, whether it's near or far, wherever it is, find a group. I like that. A group that's supportive, a group that can lift each one of you up. Um, We are very grateful for these inputs and these um, points that you've given us. I think our listeners will benefit from it very much. Lauren and Allie, I wish our time wasn't over because I enjoyed having a conversation with you both. You're both so great with what you say and gracious and passionate about everything you're doing and, and with yourselves, with your family, with your um, individual professional lives. And I, on behalf of HLP, myself, Margaret, we are so grateful that you guys made it today and had this very important conversation with us today and I know this is for me I know this is going to go a very long way I'm going to play this when it comes out multiple times over and over again I hate listening to myself but I think I would enjoy (laughs) hearing both of you thank you thank you so much and not just for being here but thank you for what you do for the community what you do for our kids what you do for us as parents Um, Thank you so much. I salute you in so many different ways and continue doing this for all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for having us. It was a real honor. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Health Outreach Partners podcast, the COVID-19 pandemic and what it taught us. This publication was supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration of the United States Department of Health and Human Services under grant number u 3 fcs 4 a National Training and Technical Assistance Cooperative Agreement under American Rescue Plan Act funding in the amount of $211,821. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy of nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thank you.